welcome back to the Cambridge University Consulting Society Michaelmas podcast series for the second installment in our little preterm summer series of events. Before we start, I just want to congratulate all of the incoming freshers for great results, and we're so, so excited that you're coming to Cambridge. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram so that you can stay up to date with all of the Cambridge Consulting Society content that you want. Today, we'll be having a conversation with Swati Deepak, who's a social justice advisor and freelance consultant, who's a leader in holding private and public foundations accountable to ensure socially minded action. She has gone on a journey as a feminist and radical justice leader, as she was previously director of With and For Girls Collective, which is the world's only participatory fund with and for adolescent girls, and the director of STARS Foundation, a private philanthropic foundation focused on funding children and young people's rights around the world. Her most recent remarkable campaign is titled Remember Those Who Made Them, and we have attached the links in the description so you can check it out. Without further ado, we'd love to welcome Swathi. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hello. Hi. Hi, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. We're really excited to hear so much more about your social entrepreneurship work. And um, I think your career is really fascinating, something that will inspire a lot of people, hopefully, um, that are listening. So um, to kind of jump right in, the first thing that I think would be really cool to talk about um, and for our listeners to hear about is if you could tell us more about the Remember Those Who Made Them campaign that you've started. Yep, sure. So um, first of all, like just again, super thank you for having uh, me on and um, great to hear about all the work that Camstar and you all are doing um, around uh, energizing more social entrepreneurship. Um, So Remember Who Made Them is a campaign that I launched with um, some friends and colleagues in 2020 in August last year. Um, And the mission statement of the organization is really that um, we wanted to um, make sure that we were working towards a new solidarity economy in fashion. So we were just realizing that actually at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic last year, when shops shut, loads of, um, you know, retailers cancelled billions uh, worth of orders with um, factories around the world. Um, And these weren't kind of ordinary just cancellations. This was like 2.8 billion um, worth of cancellations for orders that had already been finished or were just in mid-production, meaning that people had actually worked on them, sewed them, started bagging them up, and they had even left their countries of origins and landed in places like Europe or North America. Um, And, you know, they were completely cancelled. And the problem with that was is that, you know, obviously the COVID-19 crisis has been a really difficult um, time around the world for many people, but particularly for garment workers and people who are making our clothes around the world. Uh, one in five people on the planet work in the fashion industry um, and actually 80% of um, garment factory workers around the world are women and girls of color. So these are black and brown women who are making our clothes and most of them are earning just $21 a month is the kind of global average 
And, you know, so it's a tiny, tiny amount. So you can imagine that when orders got cancelled, it means that their factories and employers couldn't then pay them, which just pushed millions of people and families around the world into really extreme poverty like within two weeks just because 21 dollars mm-hmm. a month isn't really making the ends meet and so we were just really compelled to do something about it um we wanted to help energize a new solidarity economy um in fashion and for us that meant an economy that centers the health and well-being of workers over corporate profits an economy that cares about the social and environmental impact of the clothes that we buy um, and an economy that builds power in the communities where our clothes are made. I think Mm -hmm. one of the other things that we were really seeing at the time was just that, um, you know, garment workers are really continually disrespected and devalued by the fashion industry. And it's not the exception, it's the rule. And I think last year, you know, we saw quite quickly and early on into the Uh, COVID-19 pandemic, um, you know, different companies were putting out t-shirts that were just saying, um, you know, help the NHS or, you know, staying in or things to do with either raising money for the crisis or about, you know, thinking about the pandemic. And yet those you know, millions of workers around the world hadn't been paid. And further than that, they, you know, they were making these clothes without any PPE in really unsafe conditions um, around the world. And we wanted to show that there was an alternative. So them is a podcast series, um, a digital campaign um, across Instagram and other social media platforms. Um which is helping to kind of educate people about what goes on in the fashion industries and what are the actions that we can all take as individuals and collectively to change that. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting campaign. I'll put the link in the description of this podcast because I think um, the educational value is so important, particularly to people my age, given that we've all probably bought from a fast fashion company like Boohoo or Pretty Little Thing and probably haven't thought that much into the decision we're making as consumers. Um, I was wondering if you could touch a bit more on how we actually hold companies account that are creating these issues in the communities of people, of garment workers, and how you see the goal being reached aside from just improving education and knowledge about the issue. Totally. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I don't think your or your generation is, you know, um, is the only one. I've bought things from fast fashion brands um, myself as well before knowing more about it. And I think this goes down to the issue of like, actually, when you think about something being, you know, I remember Boohoo had like a 99p bikini out last year. And the reality is, is that, you know, that costs 99p because there's been extreme extraction and exploitation that has happened for that 99p piece of clothing to be produced. If you think about the people that have had to either pick the cotton or make the fabric to dye it, to stitch it together, to pack it, to send it over, the cost of that um, for it to be 99p for the organ for you know Boohoo or one of the other big fashion brands to actually make a profit on it. Um, there has had to be major corners cut along the way. There is just no way that, um, you know, uh, items can be produced at that really, really low rate. Um, I think the actions that we can take are, you know, 
it's not just to demonize people who are buying from fast fashion brands like some people can only afford to do that and um you know that's absolutely fine as well the the point of the remember who made them campaign is to also honor the work that has gone into the clothes that we make so if you do buy one of those um you know 99p bikinis uh if you wear it once and throw it in the bin that is you know like a a big just disregard for the people that have made the clothes, let alone the planet that's being yeah. awash with lots of environmental waste that's caused by fast fashion. And actually, after the oil industry, fashion is the second biggest polluter in the planet on the planet. So it's a huge, huge culprit of climate change issues that we're all thinking about more and more these days. So I think it's that it's not about demonizing where you're buying from. It's just make those clothes last, like honor the lay and the time that's gone into those clothes and treat them with respect because 85% of clothes that we buy from fast fashion actually end up in landfill within a year. Um, it's like a hor horrifying statistic, but there are, mm -hmm. you know, massive mountains in, um, you know, places like Ghana or Uganda and other countries around the world that, you know, we're shipping our waste off to and it's polluting their waterways, their soil um, and, you know, disrupting local economies as well. So we also need to A, be really aware and conscious about what, not just where we're buying from, but um, making sure that we actually honor those clothes and don't just like throw them in the bin or even when we give them to a charity shop, 70 that we send to a charity shop actually end up overseas as well. They don't usually get sold in our country. They get shipped off to another country to deal with um, the waste issue. I think the other thing that you can do is also to join campaigns like Remember Who Made Them, like Fashion Revolution, like Labour Behind the Label, Clean Clothes Campaign and Remake. So these are all campaigns that Remember Who Made Them, when we were setting up, we were just are so inspired by them. And what they really do is just speak to the workers on the ground and understand what it is that workers really need from consumers in, you know, places like the UK where we all are. And they create campaigns to really amplify those demands. Mm -hmm. And an example of that is that, you know, last year there were two big unions in Myanmar uh, one that was making clothes for guests, uh, another one that was making clothes for Primark and, and a whole bunch of other suppliers. And the workers in that factory were actually, there was a whole group of them that had asked for access to water, drinking water at work, which we would all expect to be a normal thing that an employer should be providing. But these, uh, what actually happened is all of those workers that asked for water uh, and started demanding management to provide drinking water for all the workers were actually dismissed from and, you know, fired from their places of work. And what happened is, you know, lots of these campaigns that I mentioned, Remake, um, Clean Clothes Campaign and others, they amplified that information um, so that we as consumers knew what was happening and it meant that we could then go onto the social media accounts uh, or email um, Primark guests and be like this is going on in a factory in Myanmar what are you going to mm -hmm. do about it 
because the power does hold in whilst we might try and shift the blame to factories they're just trying to fulfill time and orders and costs for the suppliers um and so when we did that and spoke to like you know the lots of people were commenting on Primark and guests like pay up hashtag pay up or hashtag pay your workers what that meant was that actually a couple of weeks later those same staff members that had been fired for asking for clean water were actually reinstated into their job so it does have an impact if you get involved in those online kind of campaigns there's another one at the moment with H&M which is called Justice for um, uh, Justice for Jayashree. And she was uh, a young woman in Kerala, one of the factories that supply H&M's clothes in Kerala and South India. And she was uh, from a Dalit community, which is um, a very, it's a low caste community in India under a lot of subjugation. And she was actually raped and murdered by her supervisor in the factory. And so mm-hmm. there has been a lot of work to try and amplify you know, justice for her life as well. And also just looking into sexual harassment within um, H&M supply chain. And a lot of this is about learning from what workers are doing on the ground and then amplifying what we're, you know, what we can do by lending our voice to that um, through our social media, through emails and just through questions back to the brands that we're buying from. Yeah, I think that really shows the importance of the campaigns really well. And you touched upon how, this issue is something that is very gendered and also really the supply chain seems to be institutionalizing racism given that one I think you said 80% are women and people of color and as you also mentioned these massive landfill sites that fill up are in developing countries so it's also a post-colonial issue as well because in the west we might not see the impact of our buying a dress for just one party and then throwing it away. But the people in these global South communities are definitely experiencing that impact that I think we are just completely, unfortunately, really unaware of. Um, My next question would be, as much as these campaigns are really important in encouraging consumer, uh, sorry, companies to be more ethical, are there alternatives for consumers who decide that actually the H&M supply chain, the Primark supply chain is too exploitative and we want to buy elsewhere. Do these companies exist in your opinion? Yeah, there's loads of them. And I think one of the misconceptions is that people think that ethical fashion is going to be like way out of their price range. And actually the reality is, is that yes, there are ones that are very, very expensive, but they're made as products that you're going to have for a lifetime as well. You know, they're heirloom products and, and, it's not that you're just buying this one dress to wear for like a Friday night. Um, not that we know when the next Friday night where we'll be all wearing a new <laughs> outfit would be. But, um, you know, when we were buying in that way, oh, I'll just wear that to wear this weekend or for this dinner or for this wedding. Um, it's something that you should just treasure. And so I think some there are a lot of uh, ethical brands that are at that um you know, that are at that more expensive level. But there's also a lot of very, very reasonable um, uh, clothes that you can find. And actually, the reality is, is that there's really good, um, there's good on you, which is an app that you can use to find out um, 
different brands that are ethical and they've got like a whole list of them across the board mm. there's loads that actually use dead stock fabric and what that means is that loads of fast fashion or other fashion companies actually produce lots and lots of fabric but don't end up using it and then just leave it and so it becomes dead stock it's essentially just waste um lying around the industry and actually, there are lots of companies like there's one called the Emperor's New Clothes that's based down in Brighton. And they make like made to order outfits for you from dead stock. So there's lots of really interesting alternatives. Um, and they're not just based here in the UK. You can find them all over the world. There yeah. are just incredible, incredible brands. So I think definitely have a shop. Also, you know, the most sustainable clothes that exist are the ones that you've already got in your own wardrobe. So like get your styling, you know, like tips out, try and look at what you can repurpose and redo with what you already have. And also, you know, if you're comfortable shopping from, um, you know, vintage shops, uh, Depop um, and other kind of uh, secondhand sellers, that's also another way you can often find really good things that have only have never even been worn or just been worn once to a you know to a wedding or to a party and then not used again so I think there's like whole options that suit lots of different budgets mm -hmm. and I've definitely seen a shift towards Depop um in my generation um but speaking of alternatives I know you've also been an angel investor in the past and now and I was wondering if you could tell us more about the fashion startups that you yourself have chosen to invest in and what motivated you to engage in these project projects and what types of businesses they are? Yeah, totally. So I think like really it was just, um, I'd started a music and arts business when I was in my 20s with friends and we'd put on music festivals around the world and, you know, made profit, did really well. And I remember being a bit like, oh, I don't know, do I just put money into like a savings account? What do I actually do with it? Like apart from, you know, property or savings and, and so on yeah. and being in that privileged position to do so. And so I think it was just that I wanted to put my money into emerging industries that I really believed in that actually cared about people and cared about the planet as well and so the companies that I invested on from an early days like had both those aspects they were trying to hold social and um, environmental responsibilities so the first was like a glamorous camping business which was like uh, glamping at music festivals so we used to do like it was a company that did all of it for um, uh, Glastonbury and Wilderness and all the kind of big music festivals in the UK but the actual the tents came from a women's cooperative in India um, and all oh, of cool. the furniture inside the glamping was all like repurposed um, so it was like old tea chests old um you know like uh railway um wooden like uh slacks and were turned into like the bed frames so a lot of it was about like the repurposing um but also investing into like the cooperative in india and then most recently it's been um a fashion company uh in india called 1111 and what really drew me to them was that they um they have like a seed to stitch model. So they really believe in um, an indigenous uh, way of growing and spinning cotton in India called Khadi. And actually, like you talked about it earlier, but it's really important from a 
post-colonial perspective because actually Khadi and the Indian textile industry was the leader in the world when the East India Company, um, you know, went to India mm. and they went there particularly to disrupt the fashion, the textile industry, which was the world leader at the time. And, you know, we all know from history that East India Company went in to, you know, bring in British trades into that. It disrupted the industry and it ended up leading to, you know, India, uh, India being under colonial rule of Britain for like hundreds of years. Yeah. That India just got... Um, you know, liberated from in 1947. And actually the wheel in the middle of the Indian flag comes from the spinning wheel of Khadi because it was about reclaiming, it was about, re like for Indians in the struggle for a free India, it was about reclaiming their land, reclaiming their autonomy, but it was also about acknowledging that by taking back our way of, spinning our own cloth about generating our own money about leading our own economy would also be a path to liberation and so you can see it like in the center of the Indian flag is still that wheel that comes from it so yeah. for me like I I come from an Indian family I've grown up between Delhi and the UK and you know for me it was really special that it was something that was tied to like a post-colonial thought but actually it's a company that consider like Cardi is really special because it's really low water it grows really wild it has very high like yields and harvest and actually you can spin Cardi into lots of different forms including denim and it can be dyed with natural dyes like indigo to form like denim colors or blue colors and they only use natural dyes 1111 in all of their clothes so they use like turmeric or petals they even use like rust um, to dye fabrics mm -hmm. so I really loved that sort of aspect of they had this they really thought about the seed to stitch and they also thought about the fact that all of the materials are because they're 100% natural, like the fibers, the dyes, the buttons are made from like coconut husks and stuff. And this is, you know, like, I say it in a way that makes it sound really rustic, like the pieces, some of the pieces are like a 1000 pounds or dollars a piece, like this is like high fashion stuff yeah. that you see on different, you know, we've had lots of celebrities like in India and globally, like wear it as well. Um, mm -hmm. But it's also, you know, there are pieces in there that are also more affordable that are like, you know, 40 pounds or 30 pounds, like equivalent. So the range of things that you can get is, yeah, for me, those were the things is I wanted to invest in things that was people and planet, but also people that I really um, believed in as well. So I think that's like a key to investing is um, looking at the profit margins, of course, but also looking at what, it, you know, is this going to bring harm to people? Is it going to pollute the planet yes. um, or not? Yeah, I love the authenticity um, of the company I think it's 1111 I'm definitely going to check it out it's 1111 yes. right the name yeah of the um cool yeah I'll definitely take a look um I kind of have a more technical question based on what you were talking about so the women's collective the one that built the tents in for glamping um 
are these so you mentioned like profit margin is something you look at so are these profit making companies rather than non-profits or social enterprises so they're both i mean um so i think social enterprise sits on a spectrum right like you have mm -hmm. organizations that are probably just doing things for the good of humans around the world like so you can get a social enterprise for instance which is um you know taking people who are coming out of the prison system or people that are unemployed and upskilling them into a new kind of skill like so say it's upcycling uh, furniture and then if you sell that furniture that is a social enterprise because it's um, money coming in to support this incredible social cause um you know, but the primary work of the organization is um, is actually retraining people and upskilling people so that they can have jobs and have good livelihoods. And actually the products mm -hmm. that they're selling as a result of that is like a secondary aspect of the of, you know, training people up. So that's like one end is how you can start a social enterprise. Then it like the spectrum kind of changes across the board. You can then have groups that are like actually about, okay, well, we just whole thing is about the products that we're selling and it has to be done in a way that um, uh, benefits people and planet uh, that also the money goes back into that work as well. So I think there are like, there's a whole range. I think there's like seven or eight different types of types of way of looking at a social enterprise, like across that spectrum. Like either you're starting from I need to upskill people or I need to do something in my community. And actually some of the things that we produce might make us some money to help with that primary work. Or at the whole other mm -hmm. end, you're developing you know, a lifestyle brand or an approach that actually just thinks about people and planet right from the beginning. And so the profits yeah. that you're making is not that it's going to a good cause necessarily, it's that it can come back into your company, but that company is paying its workers like a living wage. It's caring about, you know, it's having a very low environmental impact on mm -hmm. the world. Um, and then in between, you get lots of other kind of things in that spectrum. So you have like the model like Tom's, for instance, where, you know, you buy a pair of shoes and they give a pair of shoes, you know, in, you know, to someone who needs them. And so, you know, like yeah. that kind of sits in the middle of those two kind of examples. And for me, you know, the investments have been you know, for-profit companies, but everyone in that supply chain is supported like through, like properly through it. Like they don't need charity because charity shouldn't be there if solidarity is there. Like if solidarity exists, then everybody in the supply chain is treated as equal, as important, as someone who is worth, who is not worth exploiting, um, is someone who should get a total um good access to life be rewarded for the work that they do or not rewarded be just acknowledged for the important work that they're doing to yeah. build that brand up so yeah for me I feel like social enterprise is like a big spectrum of different um options and opportunities um and yeah like the investments have definitely been on that latter end but they have also given to charity uh through their process there's a lot of like supporting 
different groups. Um, there's a lot of uh, like 11-11 did this amazing range uh, where they had collected all of the scraps that had been on the factory floor um, from the time they started the organization. And, you know, it amounted to tons of different waste. And what they did with that is they either the really small fibers, they turned it into paper and books and gave that to artists, schools, activists to be able to use. Um, and then the bigger things, they actually sewed it into uh, rugs or uh, other pieces um, that are just beautiful as well. Amazing. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, as I said, this is kind of from an investing perspective. This might be a bit of a sort of capitalist myth, but is investing in social enterprises that might be on the spectrum of closer to sort of a profit making traditional corporate company do they have lower profits because they're redistributing their wealth to a high degree and are they riskier investments so I think because these companies are smaller typically um, and perhaps in their early growth stages do you find that as an investor you're making a bigger risk you're taking a bigger I don't risk? think so actually I think also the research points you a different way so I think um, in the early term there's definitely like a price uh, there's a, a profit gap like in investing in a social enterprise model versus like you know um, the oil industry or the arms trade which are like your high kind of yield investments but you really have to yes. think like do I really want to put my money into those kind of industries <laughs> when I'm trying to do good with the work that I'm doing or if I have that outlook on life so I think there's like that at that stage yeah you've got to look at it from a profit perspective but then also weigh up well what is my what's coming at the detriment to the, those really fast yield profits I think the second thing to be really aware of is that there's a really big movement towards like ESG investments and I think what they have so ESG being environmental social um, yeah. gender mm -hmm. And they've actually been picking up pace for a long time. You're now getting huge governments investing into it, big, big investors going into ESG investments and demanding that there is that lens. Lots of companies are actively divesting away from those um, kind of arms or oil industry or energy yeah. industries and putting into alternatives. I think the other thing also to say mm -hmm. is that like when – like if you looked at even just loan schemes, when the financial crash happened like a few years ago, um, which, you know, I say it's a few years ago. It's probably like when you guys were all like kids, but still uh, it was the big financial crash that happened in the United States um, in the early 2000s. And really, actually, what happened at that point is that the big crashes actually came from the risks in the financial industry. Like those um, those yeah. banks didn't pay back like on the loans, like they're the ones that defaulted. Whereas actually people who'd invested and put their money into things like micro loan schemes or micro credit schemes for like poor women in like the global south who were taking out you know hundred dollar or like two hundred dollar loans to like start up really small businesses those people never default on payments in comparison to big banks and big lenders so there's also like the myth it's yeah. just the scales are different but I think there's also just a growing and there's a movement actually of lots of different shareholders who are like there's a movement called divestment, which is swathes of people that are moving away from those kind of um, more disruptive um, investment into yeah. much more 
Hodgson. It's the campaign at Cambridge now, the diversity. Oh, amazing. That's cool to hear. Colleges can move away from, um, yeah, investing in oil companies and arm uh, military companies. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it is something really important. Okay. Thank you so much for kind of debunking that myth as well about um, investing in in uh, social enterprises because I think that's something that actually links really well to what we're trying to do at Camstart which is really raise awareness about the importance of social entrepreneurs and how the youth can engage in social change totally totally and I think that to be honest the future of business should be about like having a social enterprise approach and having a different approach to doing business because you know I so many people so many experts are telling us we've got 10 years to reverse you know, and make really steady changes um, around climate change. Otherwise, it spells like a whole wave of different disasters that's going to come our way. So I think that people are actively looking at the environment as something that needs to be prioritized. Um, And I think, you know, if you're going to be creating new companies that don't have, um, you know, angles which consider the environment consider social impacts especially in the recovery after a pandemic period i think it's like there's the phrase you're not reading the room um you know like creating things in just the pursuit of profits over people and planet i think is is just we need to feel like those are just if not more important than just profits completely yeah i completely agree and so Comstarts is actually an educational organization that um, raises awareness about these issues, but also gives you a toolkit on how you can set up your own community project that tackles an issue like climate change. Um, a very localized, it could be a very localized aspect, but it's really just encouraging high school students to try and make a social difference through um, running their own initiatives, like trying to be leaders, getting groups of students together to campaign and raise awareness about these things. And Comstart offers free mentoring resources and um also like grants to these student-led projects um to help them advocate for change and we've seen ones that are related to selling handmade jewelry from home villages related to bullying sexual harassment workshops climate change action and so hopefully some a lot of our listeners right now are students on our camp start program who are trying to kind of lead the way in the future of um socially conscious corporatism and um youth social entrepreneurship so what would you what advice would you give to them um perhaps like the best way to start this would be what inspired you to be a social entrepreneur um that would hopefully motivate them to continue doing the great work I mean that sounds amazing that all of these high school students are already doing all of these projects they're already thinking about how to do more in their community they're clearly being super entrepreneurial and you know just trying something that is new and expanding their skill sets as well um so I think what inspired me and what I would say to everyone who's on that pathway is just keep doing what you're doing. I think what you're doing is so much more than you think it is. When you look back and you think about the experience that you would have created that's helping you with, you know, your future career, your future educational pursuits, your future opportunities, like the fact that you're demonstrating those skills skills really early on and you're showing a consciousness for the community that you live in or that you work in I think is really important because 
we're not isolated from the communities that we live in. We're not isolated from the um, planet that we live on as well. Um, for me, the inspiration was really about noticing that there is just so much injustice in the world, um, that there is so much um, exploitation, there's so much violence, there's so much poverty, and yet people are, you know, people at the grassroots around the world are just the most phenomenal, innovative, engaging people that you'll meet. And I think social enterprise offers a way to do something that you love, which might be setting up a business, might be, you know, selling handmade jewelry. For me, it started off by running, you know, music festivals and, um, you know, a record label. And that, for, you know, but also thinking about how we would engage with the local community through it, where we would be putting our profits from this work afterwards. So also knowing that it was an incredible journey to go on together, but it also was about doing that with the full community. So I would say, like, keep doing that. And when you do enter jobs, you know, in governments, in banks, in different industries, into different corporations, companies, organizations, not profits bringing that lens of what you learned and saw earlier on is really important because no matter where you are, which industry or sector you sit in, having a social lens to the work you do is so important. Everyone has a responsibility. Yeah, completely agree. But I also don't want to underestimate the difficulty of galvanizing community action and connecting um, with people on an issue you're passionate about. So I think one like big challenge people face is funding so um yeah how did you tackle that issue and what was your source of funding so I think like I'm just thinking about when we set up the Moringa tree which is now called 3333 when we were first which is the music and arts organization so when we first started that I think the key thing that we really got funding from was our family and friends and our networks. So we actually just started putting on like gigs and music events um, as a way to just bring people together and, you know, for everyone to buy a ticket. And we actually just leveraged that money. We sort of took that funding and then we applied to formal sources. So there are lots of foundations that exist in your community every community in the UK um, and around the world there are many they're called community foundations and these are this is money that people from the local community put into a foundation that then grants out funding to local initiatives and groups that furthers the work of communities so community foundations are like a really great place to go um, schools are a great place to go you can also like and obviously see as a lot of the camstar um listeners are within high schools like they have that opportunity um as well mm -hmm. to fundraise from events and so on but go to community foundations there's lots of databases online um that you can find there's a an award from the national lottery called awards for all uh, anyone can apply for the funding for an idea that they have to change something in their local community and you can get actually up to like ten thousand uh, pounds but you can also apply for just like a couple of hundred or a thousand um you know at a minimum if you need to as well so there are lots of options out there for funding um but I think it's the trick is 
you know, showing that you have community buy-in from doing some community fundraising yourself, like so from your family and friends. Because in those applications to those other funders, you're saying, we know that this is important for the local community, not just because of the need that we've shown you, but also that people from this community have been willing to put into this themselves. And so that just demonstrates that more people are bought into this and you should be too. Um, and then obviously as my career has progressed I've had you know more networks to draw upon as well so I think also just thinking about the networks that you make now with people in your community mm -hmm. with businesses with um with you know educational institutes with companies with funders they also can go with you through life you know if you keep them updated uh, if you let them know the work that you're doing I think some people just take the check and get on with the work and then just say it send a little thank you note um I do think cultivating your networks with people is really important you don't know like in 10 years that you might be a bit like oh you know what I did know somebody who worked there that I could have a chat to and if you actually did do the time when you were engaged with them you're just like well I want to invite you to my event or I want to send you some pictures of what we're doing they can feel a little bit more engaged in the process and you'll stick out if 10 years from then you contact them being like hi do you remember me um and it feels it's yeah. a different relationship because they're like oh yes I do remember you you're the person who did this and I remember from all of the you know I came to one of the events because you invited me I you know made sure to be part of that process so yeah that would be my main kind of approaches like go to companies and funders um fundraise and ha actually look out for like there are lots of opportunities to get funding for the work that you have and I can drop some links if that's helpful yeah that'd be amazing that's such helpful advice thank you so essentially leverage your network and also make sure you keep up that network for the future um I think is definitely something really important um aside from funding what would you say was the main other challenge you faced when trying to start in particular, a social media campaign, like remember those who made them um, that you have to overcome? So I think for that, like the big, um, the big challenge, I think was um, around, like, a none of us had ever done a podcast before. So we were just like, how do we do a podcast like how are we going to edit it and so on and so forth um so yeah I'm like hugely impressed that you have a podcast and do this all yourself <laughs> like it's wild um so that was a big one and and I think you know we reached out to our networks and communities to ask like does anyone know how to do this like what platforms and processes do you use um and someone in our network did and they were just like we can help like put all of this together I think the second thing as well is that if you look at the remember who made them campaign like both our website and you know the social media we draw on a lot of art uh, so we use art as like a medium and we have incredible artists and illustrators and animators who work for the campaign and again you know as much as I love and I'm an appreciator of the arts I'm not an artist myself as much as I would love to be you know maybe something that's like way more random that no one else would like appreciate or buy but still um and again I think it was about saying to people look we are 
this collective we want to do this campaign and you know we're looking for incredible artists um who are willing to join us in these really early stages of what we're doing these are the kind of things that we would like to do are people interested and you know we've got a group of in- yeah. like nine or ten incredible artists who've worked on it and I think seeing the fact that there are lots of people engaged, it's not just one pe- one person, it's actually a community of people coming together, just draws more people. Because we get, you know, we've had other people being like, I'm a, you know, I want to write, like, can I do some articles for you? And then they pitch those to, like, Galdem or uh, Vogue in the UK or Shadow Magazine or others. And they've been covered, like, in that way as well. So I think there's also, like, lots of options of how you can reach out. But I feel like, again, this goes back to your leveraging your networks and keeping in touch with them is you can usually always find someone that can help you with the questions um that you have um they're probably just one or two connections away from you um so reach out and ask yeah I also think um a lot of it's about teamwork as well like you were saying leveraging the talents of the people around you whether that's people with really good drawing abilities writing abilities like the creativity of it all and getting a group of people a team together of like students your friends I think it's just something that like you can take a lot totally, of enjoyment out of totally. as well. Yeah, it's so much fun doing all of it to get, like together. That's the thing. All of the projects that I started, I've been in like groups or teams and it's been so much fun. Like you have such a good time and you know when you are facing a problem, it's not just you on your own going, "Oh my god, how am I going to navigate this? I don't know what I'm doing." You're kind of just like four of you going oh my God, we don't know what we're doing. And then you can giggle about it and laugh and then be like, actually, we can. We can reach out to these people and ask. We can take advice from these people. Let's put an email out to this person. Uh, And you can figure things out, but also like take a little bit of joy from the journey and the experience when you're together. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it sounds like a really fulfilling career. And... um, I know people listening as well are kind of at the decision-making point in their lives where they're choosing what career path to take. And even though it's not set in stone and you can change your career many times, a lot of people do consider the consulting industry and um, a typical route, particularly with Cambridge students, is to go to a corporate big consulting firm like McKinsey, BCG, OCNC, all these like big four, Mm. the big four companies um, given that you avoided that path and you actually became an independent consultant and get instead consulting a range of NGOs, working with schools and different uh, non-profits, what do you think are the benefits of taking that path and being an independent consultant versus just going to one of these big corporate firms and thinking, I'll bring a socially conscious like edge, I'll work with non-profits at my job. What would you say are the pros and cons and would you make that So, I, you know, for me, like, I'm really grateful for my path and my journey to this. And, I, and like, I think everyone has, like, a different path and I don't think there are right or wrong paths at all. Um, I think if you want the kind of stability and the big kind of, in, like, a, a, a big learning environment to be in uh, that's structured, I think the consulting firms, like, they're brilliant. They are full of, like, really smart, clever people. Um, but I think it's like you end up, like, a lot of people just stay in them and 
don't necessarily get a lot of the exposure to the different places. They don't get to work like on the ground on some of the issues that they're consulting on, um, you know, and that might suit you like and that and there's nothing wrong with that at all. I think for me, I wanted to be able to travel and I didn't want to just travel to like the and work in New York, Paris, like the kind of main destinations that you would go for work trips. I wanted to go to like random places in the world and see them and get to experience them mm -hmm. myself. And so for me, the pathway was about either starting things myself and going on these journeys like so with the music and arts business it was like let's start music fest festival in Ghana and so moving out to Ghana and kind of just figuring out how to run a music festival that's actually I mean aside from obviously COVID at the moment it was it was uh, voted <laughs> by GQ as being one of the top 10 festivals in the world um two years ago yeah oh, wow congratulations which is amazing that's and that's like the festival going 10 years later from when it started um but like going out there at the time and just being a bit like oh it this is like a huge challenge and none of us really know what we're doing but we have a good idea and we have each other and we have lots of networks that we're going to draw upon and we get to live beside a beach and you know be with um you know just incredible who can that we're working alongside that we're being informed by that we're actually adding value to as well and being in dialogue with um and we're not doing something that's harmful um you know and i i felt that i've like whatever i've done i felt that i've been with the local community the whole time that they have been yeah. a part of my learning um and what i've understood and the way that my mind has shaped and changed um over this time and I don't think that if I'd gone into you know a big firm I would have got to live in all the places that I've lived or travel to all the places I've traveled and I wouldn't have got to spend that much time actually learning from people in the local community and I think that's what has helped me now in my career because I you know I now advise like governments and UN agencies and heads of businesses and corporations on their like philanthropy or their gender lens investment strategies or different aspects um, and I wouldn't have been able to maybe speak with as much confidence if my experience had just come from working in firms compared to doing it myself seeing it myself um, as you know and being immersed yeah. in it um, but again everyone's got really different journeys and I think you know mine was full of a lot more risks you know things could have not worked out um I'm also mindful that I had you know like some sort of uh I ha had a net around me like of you know because of my parents that if you know, things went completely yeah. awful. I wouldn't be out on the streets. You know, I, I could still be with my parents. I could still kind of get up. And I also recognize that not everyone has that privilege as well. So I think if you need to go down a route where you can build up like some kind of financial support around, take the leap when you have that like the ability or the privilege yourself, then you could also do it that way. You don't have to do it the way around like I did. Mm -hmm. I think a leap is a really good way to describe it because particularly at Cambridge everyone just goes into corporate jobs so I think it takes a lot of confidence to be that person who's like actually I'm not going to follow the crowd and I'm going to go do something I really enjoy in arts, fashion, music 
um and given that you've had so much success in that and now work with incredible organizations and governments I know this is a difficult question but what advice would you have to those 21 year old listeners who are kind of at that point where they want to take the leap but they leap but they just are like potentially scared or yeah. unsure what the future holds? I mean I think it's such a difficult time like with COVID like I feel like you can't just pack a bag and and go to the other side of the world and just like try something out at the moment. You know, I think we've got different restrictions that are here at the moment. Um, I would say, you know, like if you are 21, if that calling is still coming to you that you're like, actually, I really do want to start up my own thing um, or I want to take that leap. I think how can you, you know, like think through exactly what that's going to take for you do you what do you need and also do you want to do it with someone else because it's a massive thing to like start something on your own and I have like so much respect for entrepreneurs who've done it like completely as a one person team you know like they've been the one with the ideas and they've led it from like a seed to like a huge company you know and I've been my pathway has not been that I've always done it with other people um you know my first business that or social enterprise that I started was with like three other people there were four of us remember who made them which is the last kind of campaign launched last year is with three other people so again that's four of us Uh, and the ones in between have had you know two or three people um that have been part of that journey so for me it's like can you know, who can you go with? Like, where, like this journey that you want to go, um, who else do you want to, can you do this with? Because you also want to learn together. You want to reflect together. You want to be able to like cry and get frustrated and angry at things and feel so yeah. isolated, which is, I think, why organizations feel really appealing because you feel like you have that social structure around you so I think when you're 21 it makes sense to either go into an organization to have that kind of mutual support um, and to also get that experience but also if you have other people that are willing to support you to mentor you to work alongside you in the journey and you think that's enough it's never also too late to just like try something different again you know I have like lots of friends who are sort of now in their mid-30s who've done the corporate job route um for the last 10-15 years you know have got married have bought their houses have got kids um and you know they're the ones who are just like actually I do want to do something really big and different now so I think it's also that if you've got that in you like if you've got that itch in you now you can do something about it now, but you can also make a longer term plan around it um, and come back to it at different points. Like it's never, ever too late to change. Yeah, and I think also there's definitely a lot of organizations that exist that aren't just big corporate firms, like organizations that you can join as a graduate, like NGOs, the companies that you worked in when you were um, starting your career in the music, like work for festivals and like then you build your connections and the network that you talked about so um I think one aspect is just researching and using um maybe this is easier outside of COVID but just like really using the people around you to find out what's out there rather than kind of assuming there's yeah there are so many I mean like you would be surprised what people work in you know I like when I tell people I get to work with governments and you know uh, big 
UN agencies and big foundations or, you know, celebrities or individuals and I get to advise them on gender and racial justice. Like it feels like, oh my God, you have such a lucky job. And I'm just like, I do. It's an incredible, I'm so privileged to do this work, um, you know, as a consultant. And the work as a consultant also is just enhanced by doing all of the like the startups on the side and the investments on the side because it just broadens your understanding and your abilities and you can give your clients if you still want to consult you can give your clients so much more because I can talk about grassroots organizations I can talk about governments I can talk about the music industry I can talk about the fashion industry like these are all things that I'm consistently learning even outside of being in an educational institution Mm-hmm. And one final question, sorry, I know we're mm-hmm. running out of time, but are these startups that you work with, do you find them as well through connections and networking or how do you come across these opportunities? So I do, like the investments have all come through, like the ones that I've invested in have all come through personal connections and research. You know, I was really like, I'm really interested in the following things. And actually I put out random, I didn't allude to the fact that I wanted to invest in them, but I put on my like social media, media like my LinkedIn um, Twitter etc mm-hmm. at the time being like does anyone know of any good ethical fashion companies and you know I got loads of people from my network telling me oh my god you should speak to this person check this out and then I had like a much more condensed research list that wasn't just me typing that into Google that came with some sort of element of trust behind it because someone I knew was recommending it to me yeah that makes sense and you work at the London School of Fashion as a guest lecturer as well so I'm assuming you get a lot of kind of creativity and connections yeah totally yeah they're um it's like for their different master's courses and it's just it's really interesting because um I always think about oh well you know if this is the next like Stella McCartney or the next kind of Karl Lagerfeld or whatever (laughs) it'd be great to make sure that they um ensure that their workers are and the planet is really factored in the way that they build their new brands as well one that actually makes sure that people throughout their supply chain are joyful in their lives you know and that there isn't so much waste going into the planet as a result of their business practices yeah and I can I think that kind of speaks to the point we made earlier that education like the remember those who made them campaign is a huge way to make that difference and encourage people to um, improve the way that fashion companies operate so yeah education is completely a tool that needs to be leveraged totally totally thank you so much I've had such a good um chat with you thank you for listening to me ramble on <laughs> no thank you so much for all your helpful advice I think it was really productive and there's so much to take from everything you've just said so thank you for your time and really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it too um yeah let me know what else I can do to help. Will do. Enjoy. You the too. Take evening. care. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to our podcast series here at Cambridge University Consulting Society. Be sure to follow our Instagram at Cambridge Consulting Society and us on Facebook at Cambridge University Consulting Society. Stay tuned for our summer series of events and stay tuned for a new round of our mentorship program. 
Once again, thanks so much and hope to see many of you around at Cambridge. <laughs>